How many of you have ever set out to build something from the ground up? A shed, an addition, something that needed a foundation. Any of you? Yeah, okay, I see a few hands. Um, a few years ago, at our old house, my wife and I decided to put on some extra square footage, and so we took an addition off the back side of our house. And one of the things that I knew I didn't want to screw up was the foundation. I think you probably recognize why. So I hired a local excavator to come in and to dig with his mini excavator to dig out, you know, a 25 by 10 or whatever the space was, addition off the back of our house and to pour the footer. And then he had a sub come in and lay the block. And then I went to work with the wood I had ordered, um, started trying to get the foundation, uh, trying to get the, the floor down um, on top of that foundation wall. And what did I find when I got out in the yard with all my lumber and I started trying to lay the, the footer and bolt the, the first two by eight or two by 10, whatever it was, to those bricks? What I found was that from the back of the addition wall to where it was going to intersect with my current kitchen, it went down about an inch and a half over that space. And I was sitting there thinking, why did I pay somebody to do this? Isn't this exactly what I was trying to avoid in the first place? But I wasn't going to have him come and rip it out. And so I just decided to make do with it. And that issue with the foundation affected me all the way to the end. I doubt our, we sold that house. Sayonara, baby. <laughs> but that stupid issue got to me the entire project because <clears throat> I was able through calculations and making adjustments to, to do seamless hardwood through the house. So that inch and a half was, was mitigated and you didn't see it when you were inside unless one of your kids was playing with a ball and they dropped it and then it would just roll right down to, the, to the, where the current house was, where the, where the addition and the current house met. I remember one day sitting out on my patio looking at the fascia board that looked out over the patio, off the original house, going in line with the addition. And I remember thinking, that thing, the tilt in it, you can just see with your eye. I mean, it drove me nuts. The board just went mm, down. And so one day I decided, this is what a chalk line's for. I got out there, made a chalk line on that sucker, took my battery-powered circular saw and cut off the fascia board so it appeared level. It was not. If you looked at the peak of the roof, you could still see that the peak was slanted back toward the original house, even though the fascia board was straight. I had a lot of issues, and you will too if you screw up the foundation. Now listen, <clears throat> we're setting into a book of Acts, and I recognize we're taking a little bit of time settling into the book. Um, I do expect that we will move a little quicker as we get into some of the narrative portions but I want to take our time setting up the forms and getting the foundation for the, book, the message of this book right. Luke is, is giving us the foundational truths in the beginning verses of this book, and so I'm not gonna rush it, and I don't want you to rush it. Somebody said last week, at the pace you're going, we're gonna be in Acts 10 years. We're not gonna be in Acts 10 years. But we are gonna take our time and make sure that the foundation is straight and plumb and that we understand the message, that we understand 
what Luke is trying to accomplish with this book as he writes to us about the work of the early church. So would you stand with me? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9, 10, and 11 this morning. Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. This is God's word. After he, being Christ, had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, as Jordan referenced, and as we sang together with all of our lips, we now sit down to be fed by you from your word. You say that your words are our food, and that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that is spoken by you, and you've given it to us, Lord. We aren't malnourished for lack of food that's available to us. So as we look at your word and seek to learn from it, give us an appetite. Uh, May we hunger and thirst after righteousness, and may we find it in your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. You may be seated. Something's never um, ceased to stop amazing me. There are things that I can see every week, every year, and every time I see them, I'm filled with, with joy and wonder at the beauty and at the grandeur. Sunsets at night, sunrises in the morning out over our front yard, smiles from my children, sometimes especially from my daughters wanting to come up. Those things never cease to fill me with joy and warmth and love. About this time of year, I start thinking about what it's like to go up north this time of year and to see the beauty in the trees as you drive. How many of you have ever driven up near Traverse City, up north into Michigan about this time of year? About 20-some years ago, 25 years ago, we started going up near Traverse City to, to Glen Arbor. And I just love driving up there about this time of year because you, get, you start getting near the coast of Michigan and inland from the coast there, there are those big hills that start rolling and there are those trees that sort of crouch right up to the road on each side and the limbs hang over the trees, over the, over the roadways, you're going up and down and, and you see the, the greens bleed into those sort of mellow yellows and those rusty oranges and then those deep reds and it is, it is beautiful. And I, love, I never get tired of seeing it. I could see it every year and I wouldn't get tired of it. I get tired of Cedar Point. I never get tired of going up there and looking at the leaves. There's a lot of things in the world that cause us to, to see and to be, be amazed and wonder at and be filled with, with a sense of awe at. And I hope that as Christians, when we read the Word of God, 
were filled with a similar sense of awe and of wonder. I really hope that every time we read the word of God, it strikes us. That when we read it, we are surprised by something that we read. We're dumbfounded, startled at how different and magnificent God is from the way that we think. I really hope that I read the Bible that way and that you read the Bible that way because that shows that we're actually dealing with the Bible, that we aren't just skimming over it, that we aren't just assuming lots of things about what it's trying to teach, but that we're really wrestling, making contact with what the Bible says. Because God is wonderful and glorious, and Jesus is wonderful and glorious and says so many things that are counterintuitive to the way you and I would think. How many men and women in the Bible wondered, there's that word, Mary, the shepherds wondered at the things that were told them by the angels? Or the people wondered at the things that were retold them by the shepherds, rather. Wondered and amazed at the things that God had told them. Whether through the voice of a, a prophet or an angel or at times animals, a donkey. How often were the disciples told something by Jesus that upended their expectations? It just is totally different than what they were expecting Jesus to say or to do. It happened all the time. And I'm sure, I'm sure that being surprised by Jesus was a daily daily fact of life for the disciples. And we're not any better than them. And we aren't any more heavenly minded or spiritually advanced than they were. And if we are not shocked or surprised or offended at what the Bible says, then what I want to say, I want to warn us that it's a sign that we aren't grappling with what the Bible says in the way that we should. Not that we need to be offended every time, but we should be surprised or inspired or confused and pondering, why would he say this? Why would he do this? Or offended when we, when we read the Bible. It shows that we're making contact with it. I say this because our passage this morning is such a text. The passage this morning is radically different than anything I would expect. If you were planning Jesus going away party, it would look very different than what we've talked about over the last couple weeks. And if you were given the responsibility and the authority to write how Jesus would leave this earth and what it would look like, none of us, none of us would do it in the way that, that Jesus decided to do it. Familiarity with this section causes us to pass over its strangeness without pausing. But we need to pause and to consider what we're told. Let's consider what is to be learned from the discrepancy between what we would presume, presume or assume and what God predestined to occur. And then, when we see that discrepancy, that difference between what we might have thought and what God did, the result should be that we glorify God, that we stand in awe of his wonder and his wisdom, and we recognize that it's so much better than our own. The details of Jesus' ascension into heaven are presented here as flowing right out of what came before. Last week, we looked specifically at verses 6 through 8. And this is the passage that documents the last verbal interactions Jesus has with his disciples. It says, when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you are going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then he'll come upon you with power, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, the farthest portions of the earth. Then verse 9, where our passage picks up this morning, says, after he had said these things... After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine being the disciples in this moment? Think about it. Can you imagine it? 43 days prior, Jesus had been lifted up. 43 days before this day, where they're at in our passage, Jesus had been lifted up again, but in a much different way. Instead of being lifted up into the sky by a miraculous ascension, he was lifted up onto a cross by the hands of sinners. The disciples hadn't been there to witness that ascension, but they're here now, no doubt longing for more time, more opportunity to speak with their master. Of course, they're excited about the work that lays before them. Uh, I'm not trying to, to paint this scene with with totally gloomy colors, with, with, with a sense of despair. I'm not saying that, that is, those were the clouds that hung over the disciples that way, that day. But I'm saying this was a radically difficult experience for the disciples. Remember that at a certain point in Jesus' ministry, he had taught that it would be necessary to drink his blood and eat his flesh if they wanted any part of him. Do you remember when he said that? Do you remember Jesus taught that? Do you remember the response of the crowds when Jesus taught that? They were disgusted by it. It says that they and the disciples grumbled, murmured, whispered amongst themselves, this is a hard teaching. What on earth does he mean by this? And you remember that Jesus said to them, Does this statement cause you to stumble? Are you upset by me saying you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If this causes you to stumble, if this is a hard, hard truth for you to grapple with, what are you going to do when I ascend back to where I was and I'm here no more? Jesus understands himself that that his ascension is going to be difficult for his disciples. And he speaks that to him way back. I think it's in John 6. What the disciples are doing in, our, our, in the passage this morning is no doubt going to be difficult. And you think about the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples and vice versa. What's the closest friendship you have? If you're married, what's the closest friendship outside of marriage that you have with another person? Who is that person? How long have you known them? How did you get to know them? What does that friendship mean to you? What would you be willing to do for that person, that man or woman, as a result of your friendship? Just after Jesus had taught and said, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh, and everyone murmured, oh, this is a hard, hard truth for us to grapple with. He said, if you can't take this, what are you going to do when I ascend it? Right after that, we're told that many of Christ's disciples, his followers, those who had been coming with him, listening to him, 
appreciating his teaching, fell away. They left him. They couldn't take it. They couldn't bear the truth that Jesus was, was giving to them. And we're told that after the crowd left him, he turned to his disciples and he asked Peter, he said, you do not want to go away also, do you? And do you remember what Peter said to him? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I, I, I call us, I ask you to travel with me back to that interaction because that was most likely a number of, uh, a number of months, a couple of years prior to the ascension on the day that we're reading about. And I think that this passage, G. Peter saying, where else would we go, Lord? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nothing else out there for us. I think that encapsulates the depth of love that we need to recognize was there on the day that Jesus left them. Jesus, Peter had said, where else are we going to go? This is the love and dependence that these men had for Jesus. Except today, when Jesus ascends, it wasn't Jesus asking if his disciples wanted to leave him. He was leaving them. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. There he goes, not on a magic carpet, not in a chariot of fire, not instantaneously disappearing in a flash, but being lifted up in a cloud. Scripture talks about clouds a lot. Psalms say, he who makes the clouds his chariots, the Lord, the Father, Father God, received him back up into glory. God sent his chariot, his divine chariot to pick Christ up. Isaiah talks about the Lord riding on the swift clouds. If you have an understanding of the great love for the disciples for their Savior, the closeness of the friendship and everything that they had been through, then you understand that as Jesus ascended back to his Father, it wasn't a moment that was total despair. It wasn't a, a moment of total gloom. I'm not trying to paint it with that total coloring. But you have to understand that as Christ ascended, there were probably tears descending from them. Not as those that had no hope, but this is a difficult thing. Having thought a little bit about the emotional state that the disciples are in, I would like to make, with the remainder of our time this morning, a couple of observations about what is said to them by these two men that we I know they appear as men, but they're angels from the Lord that appear in verse 9. And then I would like to draw an application from the fact that this moment is nothing like what we had imagined it might be. That this moment is so different than what we would have written if we were tasked with writing how this would play out. So a couple of observations to begin. First, it appears that verse 9 is a general description of what took place, and then in verse 10, we back up a little bit and we're given a little bit more detail as to what happened specifically. If you have your Bible, look at it with me. It says in verse 9, after Jesus had said these things, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's what happened. Then 10, and describing this scene that was just stated in verse 9, as they were gazing intently into the sky. 
while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Now, I've heard people describe this passage in ways before that poke a lot of fun at the disciples and sort of characterize it, and I hope to avoid that this morning. I've heard a lot of people talk about and sort of paint a scene where uh, Jesus has ascended and he's going and he's going and he gets smaller and smaller and then he disappears from their sight and then the disciples are just hanging out, waiting for him to return, spending long amounts of time staring up into the sky, waiting, 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 waiting. It's sort of this comedic routine that I've seen people do before, you know, like how long can they wait there staring up into the, into the sky? Listen, I, I, don't, I don't agree that that is what is going on. I can imagine them wanting to camp out. I can imagine them wanting to wait to see if Christ may still return again. But the text indicates something else if you actually just read it. It wasn't that the disciples were just staring up into the blue sky, waiting for Jesus to return. The text seems to indicate clearly that as they were gazing at Christ, while he was going, still ascending, two men in white clothes suddenly stood beside them. They appeared. Luke says, behold. Luke writes this word to draw attention to what follows. Look, notice. It's Luke's way of indicating the nature of what is about to happen next. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And it was a shock to the disciples. Bam, they appeared. They're watching Christ descend, and all of a sudden, these two guys are standing right next to them. The text portrays the messengers immediately appearing beside the disciples to arrest their attention, to take their attention off of what it was on and bring them down to a conversation with these guys. As if their miraculous appearance had not been enough, then they want to engage in a conversation. Have you ever been watching something and somebody wants to chat? You know, you know I, I, re I remember we had a men's event here a while ago and there was a, something up in the sky and I think Craig Twining had brought his telescope. And I enjoy looking at the stars, but I, I enjoy talking too. And I, I got the sense as I was talking with some of the people looking, they'd rather have me just shut up so they could watch into the sky than have me blab in the, you know, next to them. We've all probably experienced this at one time, in a life, uh, at one time or another. And this is what's going on. Can't they tell that the disciples are preoccupied with watching Jesus ascend into heaven? What are they thinking? Well, that's part of the point. And that's part of the lesson. These men ask, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? I mean, seriously. Come on, are you reading your Bibles? Is this crazy? Does this not stick out? Is it really? Are these guys really asking the disciples why they're watching Jesus? I mean, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Tough crowd. Do you see how strange this is? Do you understand how differently we would have written the story? Listen, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of kids here. How many of you have ever seen a kid get a balloon, a helium balloon, and then they walk with it, and it gets carried away up into the sky? How many of you have ever seen that? 
Oh, so many of you are missing out. <laughs> All right. Hazel, I got something for you here. Dakota, can you bring her up here? Now, Hazel, I've got this balloon for you, but I'm going to be kind of cruel. I can't do it. Now she wants it. I was going to cut it. I'll let you have it. But if you let go of it, it's going to go up into the sky, isn't it? It's going to float way out of reach. Now, you've got to keep this under the chair for the rest of the service, all right? You can play with it after. Maybe some of us will catch you losing it in the parking lot on your way out. Well, the point is, if you've ever seen anything levitate up into the sky, it arrests your attention. That's the whole point of the Chinese lanterns. How many of you guys have ever lit one of those things off? Have you guys ever been down in Florida when there's a launch at the Kennedy Space Center? You don't have to be there. We televise it. Why? Because people love watching that stuff. It arrests your attention. It's up, 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 up in a way. There's a guy who likes going. We, we see a lot of hot air balloons at our house for some reason. And there's a guy who does like sky gliding or something around our yard. It always captivates all our kids. We can be playing football in the front yard. We can be doing a whole host of things. And if we see that thing up in the sky, it grabs our attention. And this isn't a balloon. This is a man levitating, ascending up into the sky. This is Jesus Christ, the dearest friend of the disciples, ascending back to his fathers. And listen, think about the passage. These two men ask, why are you watching it? Have you ever thought about that? Isn't it obvious why they're watching it? After observing that these two messengers in white clothing interrupt the disciples' attentive focus on Jesus, both by their appearance, which was instantaneous, and by their questioning of them, we should also observe that the text gives no indication that they actually wanted an answer to their question. They ask a question that seems to be rhetorical. Ask for the purpose of instructing the disciples rather than obtaining an answer from them. The messengers respond to their own question immediately, stating that this Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way you've watched him go. What do we learn from the stark difference between how we would all imagine this scene and what it actually looked like? All of us understand why the apostles were staring at the sky. But the angel's words imply that that is exactly that they, what they should not have been doing. The angels are, are, are arresting the disciples' attention and redirecting it, implying that they had something else to attend to. The messengers speak to the disciples here in the very same way that likely the same two messengers speak to Mary and the other women at, as they arrive at Jesus' tomb. You remember, after he had died, Mary and some others went to the tomb to see the body of Jesus. And as they go, the body is not there. But two men in white are there, and they ask them a question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? And then there's an interesting connection. They say he's risen, tying that passage with ours this morning. It's the same sort, it, it was the same sort of question to Mary meant for instruction. 
And so for us this morning, the question is, what are we to learn? What's the instruction? What's the lesson from this ascension story? Here's what we're to learn. What we learn is that faith lives for the future. It looks ahead to what God is calling us to, and it pursues it. Faith does not live looking back at the past, nor does it grow by ponderous meditations on the present, pondering, sitting, and pondering, and thinking about what you're currently going through. These two men call the disciples and their attention to what God has told them he wants them to do in their future. Was it too much to ask just to let the disciples watch Jesus until he was totally out of sight and gone and they were sure he wasn't coming back? Couldn't they have just taken some time, a couple hours to reflect and to talk there where they had been? Did God really have to interrupt the mood by setting these sort of angelic interrupters to throw off the whole vibe, to ruin a very emotional experience? Apparently so. Faith does not stand still. It looks toward the future. And this principle applies to you as much today, just as much as it applied to the disciples as they were standing there. So what keeps you from looking forward in faith? That's how we're going to end this morning. What keeps you? There are many things that could keep us, but I want to highlight a few of them this morning. It doesn't matter how old you are, One thing that I know about each and every one of us in this room this morning is that there are things in our lives that we regret. I remember I was in kindergarten. I was at Bowling Green Covenant School. And as a part of that kindergarten year, they had these little stores where you would do things and save up kindergarten dollars and throughout the year, sort of like we do at Awana, you could go to the store and buy things. And I remember being in kindergarten and seeing a little robot that was silver with red buttons, and it lit up, and it spoke phrases, and it moved its arms and its legs, and I wanted that robot. And I saved up my kindergarten bucks to buy that robot, and after a long time of anticipation, I went down there and I bought it. And I enjoyed it, and in my memory, I enjoyed it for all of a couple days before my best friend in kindergarten, Jonathan, said he really wanted that robot. He had to have that robot. I don't know why he didn't see it before I bought it, but he had to have it. And so I decided I was going to trade him my robot for a little plastic sword. That was the first serious regret of my life. All right? And it affects me to this day. Not really. But I remember deep consternation at trading that robot. We all have things that we regret. It doesn't matter if you're in kindergarten or 60 years old. All of us regret things. The only difference is that the regrets that we have later in life typically are much more significant in nature than trading a robot. The most significant regrets also aren't the result of trading a toy or even not taking a job or missing an opportunity to make some sort of wise investment. The most significant regrets that you and I carry are always the regrets that are tied to our sins and our failures. Sexual sin, abdication in your home, not being there for your spouse, not valuing 
and wasting the time that you have with your children as they're growing up and then realizing it when it seems to be too late. The ruining of a friendship, the loss of trust. And we've all failed. We all sin. Each one of us has things that we regret in our past. I do and you do. And I'm not seeking to minimize our sins, but what we need to realize is that faith in Christ causes us to deal with our sins through repentance and then move on, move on. We aren't to be shackled to the past. And some of you live in perpetual regret. It affects you like a, like a, a cloud over Eeyore every day of your life. And this ought not be so. If you live in perpetual regret, Satan has you exactly where he wants you to live. The man or the woman who is always looking back in regret at the past is entirely ineffective at accomplishing anything good or fruitful in the future. Their eyes and their attention are fixed on something that's already taken place, and they are rendered useless to do anything good in the future because their attention is on the wrong thing. They are not able to move toward anything that's good that Jesus wants for them and has called them to because they're absorbed in the wrongs of the past. This year, Ali and I said we wanted to try and do a wildflower meadow. And uh, I was thinking about fruitfulness and how regret keeps us from being fruitful. And I thought, you know, we really didn't do it the right way. We, we, bought, we invested in this thing and we decided we were going to put down a cover crop so that the wildflowers would, would grow better once, once we planted them. So the plan was to plant a cover, cover crop this year and let it grow, and then next year, you know, till it all up and let that nutri- put nutrients into the soil. But we've never done it before, and we made a lot of mistakes. And one of the mistakes was we planted the seed way too late. So we bought the seed, we made the investment, we planted it way too late. You guys remember the beginning of the summer? It was hot. It didn't rain. All of that, I just saw pennies and nickels and dimes spread out over our front yard, wasted, wasted. It didn't grow, and what grew? Weeds. And I was thinking about that in terms of regret, because if we would have, I could have easily just thrown in the towel and said, okay, you know what, we're not doing flowers, we're doing weeds, natural grasses, all right? This is it. I could have, you know, just said, forget it, I don't want to, you know, we've made mistakes, we don't know what we're doing, and stopped. Uh, we've invested and we've had a financial loss on this thing already. I'm not going to do anything more. But if I let those regrets hold me, we would never really get what we wanted. We would never really get anything fruitful from that field. And I know that's just a simple analogy, but that's the same way it is with our lives. And you and I do this. We make mistakes. We sin. We, we bring hardship on ourselves. And then we, we never move past it. Some of you have committed sexual sins before marriage, and it is the box that your marriage lives in perpetually. It's the frame that all of marriage resides in, and this ought not be so. You live carrying regrets, and so you never move past those regrets to pursuing all the joys and the good things that God wants for you in your marriage where you are now. You know, I think we can do this by failing at times with our kids and then letting that failure and the guilt of those failures keep us from doing what we should do later in life. 
Well, I didn't do that back then, so I, I really can't do it now. It happens in all sorts of ways. We can't let our sins and our regrets over those things, failures, keep us from moving forward in faith. That is the message of the angels. Now, it's not just our own sins that we sometimes regret. It, it can be the failures of other people around us. How many times have I met young men that have grown up in homes where they have not had a, a great example or maybe no example at all? And it seems like so often their regrets about what they didn't have in a father or an example or an experience, an education, training, what, whatever you want to fill in the blank with, they latch on to that and they never move forward. And so they live their lives as adult men repeating the same mistakes from the past because they never can just move forward and recognize, yes, there were hard things. There were things that were difficult for me, but God has been here. He's provided, and I'm going to move on. Their attention is always on what they didn't have, and so they never accomplish anything for the Lord. We can't be this way. It ought not be this way with us. Do not be rendered ineffective in the work that God calls you to because you're stuck looking back at the past. You will sin. You will fail. And when you do so, I'm going to tell you, do so as a Christian. Repent of your sins, get up, and get moving toward the goal. When others sin and fail, respond as a Christian. Give them forgiveness. Don't let your response paralyze them, and don't be paralyzed when other people sin against you. If the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed. Jesus gave his life so that you wouldn't have to live shackled by your sins and regrets, but so that you could live for him. So live for him and look to him. Stop looking at yourself and look forward. Move forward in faith. Looking back at the past doesn't need to focus on regrets. That's one way we can be shackled, looking at bad things in the past. But as I was thinking about it, it's equally true that we can look back at the good things. But faith doesn't look back with nostalgia at the glory days. You recognize that? The angels were sent so that the, the disciples very quickly had to shift their attention to what God wanted them for, the, for them next rather than meditating on all the wonderful things that they had been able to participate in with Christ. Can you imagine what the early church would have been like if the whole time the apostles had been bemoaning their, their current life in comparison with, with the time that they were able to be with Jesus? Can you imagine such a thing? You know, in the Old Testament, there's an account of some Israelites going from a land of captivity back to Jerusalem. They were taken captive, and years later, uh, a number of them went back to Jerusalem, and they started to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed when they were taken captive years prior. And this is what we're told. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in the peril with their trumpets and Levites and the sons of Asaph with their cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. So as they are... In the process of rebuilding, according to the instructions of King David, they are to stand and to give praise to the Lord. And they sang and they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Yet, many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundations of the house were laid before their eyes, because it wasn't as good as it had been in years prior. 
And so we're told on that day, instead of giving glory and worship to God, what was heard is a mixture of shouts of joy and moanings and wailings of sadness. Can you imagine the disciples doing it this way when they started in on building the church? If they'd been mourning over the lost glory days of being with Christ while they went about the, the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, they couldn't have done it. Some of you are failing today because you are coasting. You are reveling in the things that God has done in your past, and you need to move on. You're coasting on the warm, fuzzy feelings of your faith in days gone by, and this not, uh, ought not to be the case. You may say, I'm thinking on the great glorious lessons that God has taught me, and there is a place for remembering and for memorials. But remember that the angels said to, to the disciples, why do you stand and look at, looking at Christ as he, as he goes? Why do you stand gazing into the sky? Faith does not look to the past. It looks to the future, and it starts pursuing it. During his ministry, Jesus told the Jewish leaders that your father Abraham, he's speaking to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? Abraham didn't just look to what God had done. He looked to what God would do. He didn't just look at the past and say, oh, God, you know, called me out of Haran and that was great and he sent this messenger to me at this time and he promised me a son. He was never just satisfied sitting, looking back at the good things that God had done for him. There was always what's beyond me. What's next? When God showed him the stars up in the sky, he recognized that he was going to have a lot of children. But guess what? Those stars were a very long distance from him. He was always looking to the future. And he died. The glory of his death and legacy is that he didn't ever die looking back like Lot's wife. He always looked ahead. He was always looking to the future by faith. Faith looks to the future. It does not dwell on the glory days of the past. So don't allow your faith to dwell on the glory days. Pray for every day to be a glory day. And then pursue it by faith. Don't talk about how, listen, don't ever be caught talking about how God did something great in your life 15 years ago. I've done that, and I understand there's a place for it, but it's also ridiculous at the same time. Don't ever be caught talking about 15 years ago without the ability to speak of some fresh occurrence of God's work in your life. That's what I'd say. Seek great power and work in your life today. Are you really going to lean on that thing for the rest of your life? Are you really going to only strike the ground once instead of many times? So faith doesn't look to the past with regret. Faith doesn't look to the past with the glory days. One more thing. Again, the messengers ask, why do you stand looking up into the sky? As if to say, don't you know that meditating on the heavens is not going to please God or to accomplish the work that Christ has commissioned you to do? There are those who live as spiritual stargazers. And what do I mean by that? Well, there are those that are always preoccupied, filling their time and their attention with spiritual thoughts, lofty thoughts, theologically precise contemplations, ponderers, podcast listeners, always listening and never learning, or at least never putting the learning to practice. 
Mothers always seeking help and advice and never moving forward. Fathers priding themselves on the right words, priding themselves that they check all the theological boxes, that they have all the right answers for all the hardest moments of life, but they never get their hands dirty in the work of actually bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Stargazers, spiritual stargazers, worthless in terms of bearing fruit, but always seeking the righteous things of God. Don't be a spiritual stargazer. Don't be like this. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Parker said that to me a few years ago. I've never forgot it. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Spiritual stargazing. What we learn from these verses is that faith looks to the future. It looks ahead to what God has called us to and moves toward it. Faith does not look back at the past, nor does it grow by ponderous meditations on what God has you in presently. As I was thinking, listening to Jordan pray for the needs of our church, I I had one more thought, and that is that God has us as an entire church right now in in a time where there's much hardship and affliction. We have a lot of people right now who are suffering, and as they suffer To the extent that we're faithful, we suffer alongside them. You recognize that? And it came to my mind that um, in a time where God has seen fit to afflict us with various things, many of which are physical ailments that are serious, it came to my mind that, that when the angels appear to these men, these disciples, They are drawing their attention to something else. They are offering a a gentle corrective to the way that the disciples were acting in the moment. But we are also taught of something about how to deal, what to do when we're in a time of suffering and hardship. I already said at the beginning, this is a time of suffering and hardship, right? The disciples are losing something. It's a loss. And... I'm not offering anything trite like, oh, just look to the future and it'll all be okay. That's not what I'm here to say. But what, it, what struck me is right after this, the, all the disciples obey. And they get up and leave. And they go back to Jerusalem. And guess what? This is kind of a spoiler alert maybe next week. But what do they do when they get back to Jerusalem? They all get together and they pray and they worship the Lord. And it struck me that in a time of hardship, one of the lessons we can learn together as a church and as individuals is that when we're suffering, um, what we must do is look forward in faith to God. And maybe we don't have the strength to get out and do much, but we are to pray. Remember that when David lost his son, he got up and he washed himself and he went and worshiped. Uh, That is something looking forward in faith that we can do in a time of hardship. And so that struck me to say, I'd like to say it this morning. So faith looks ahead and works toward it. It's not nostalgic. It does not spend time thinking, meditating on on what's come before. It does not sit idly in the present. Faith is not stargazing. It's not reflecting on our spiritual glories. Our faith must look forward and move forward. It must cause us to live powerfully today because we know what tomorrow holds. Jesus is going to return in the same way that he went. He will return in the same way he went. Faith takes the words of Jesus, takes the scripture, 
and it rushes towards it. It rushes towards the end stone, clenching it and holding it near your chest. That's what it does. Why do you stand looking into the sky? Let's pray.